Hello, and welcome back to the Theotivity Podcast. I'm glad that you joined us for today's episode as we continue in our Bible series. Uh, if you missed part one, make sure to go back and check that out where we uh, took a look at what the canon of Scripture is, what that means. And we also looked at the books of the Old Testament and why they came together. What's the story behind that? Like, why did the Jews start collecting books together? And then we also took a look at the Apocrypha and why it is that it's not found in Protestant Bibles, but that uh, Roman Catholics added to their Bibles. Uh, took a look at the reasons behind that and why it is we as Protestants reject the books of the Apocrypha. Uh, in today's episode, we're going to be continuing on and looking at the books of the New Testament. Why is it that they were added to the canon of Scripture? Um, and what was the criteria for adding uh, books to the, the Bible or recognizing these books as uh, inspired, rather? And then also we'll consider, um, you know, the hypothetical question, are there any books missing today? And what if we were to find a letter of Paul today? Would we add it? So a lot in store. Uh, but recently we just... Uh, had May the 4th, uh, so I figure it's time for a Star Wars joke on this podcast. What did Yoda say when he saw himself in 4K? What did Yoda say when he saw himself in 4K? HD, am I? All right, let's get, up, get, up, get started. The Theotivity Podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. So, after the close of the Old Testament canon, there was a period of about 400 years of silence as far as the divinely inspired writings are concerned anyways. To be sure, there were many books written during this period uh, between the Testaments known as the Intertestamental Period. You know, it's not like if people just all of a sudden stopped writing after the last book of the Old Testament was completed. Um, so <clears throat> uh, there's even some books that were written within that time period that claimed to be divinely inspired. The books of the Apocrypha fit into this Intertestamental Period. However, the Jews never recognized any other writings that, uh, other than what was already in their collection of inspired Hebrew scriptures, which we now call our Old Testament. So, this brings up the question, why were new books added to the Bible after 400 years of silence? And there's three main reasons, and we're going to take a look at this as to why the New Testament books, why Christians saw the New Testament books as needing to be added to this collection of divinely inspired books. Uh, so firstly, the New Testament is foreshadowed by the Old Testament. The Old Testament ends with the, books of, with the words of Malachi, expecting the promised Messiah to come. You could see Malachi 3, 1-4 and 4, 1-6. So this makes sense that there would be no further scripture written until the next stage in redemptive history would occur. Just as each of the great acts of redemption of God were interpreted for us in the Old Testament, the New Testament records and interprets for us the great acts of redemption that is the sending of Jesus Christ, God's Son, to be the Savior of the world. Even in the Jewish ordering of the books of the Old Testament, that's the Tanakh, we covered that in the last episode, the, the last book is what we called Second Chronicles in our Bibles, right? So the last book of the Jewish uh, Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures is, is not Malachi like in our 
um, English translations, right? It's actually Second Chronicles. And it ends with a cliffhanger. It, at the end of Second Chronicles, Cyrus, the king of Persia, is charged by the Lord to rebuild the temple and issues a command for the people to accomplish the work. The book ends abruptly with the words, let him go up. Some scholars even think that this is a cut-off sentence. And if you were a Jew who was tracking with the history of redemption being recorded in the Jewish scriptures, then this ending would seem incomplete. Does the temple get rebuilt? <laughs> is Israel restored to its former glory? What about all the promises of the Messiah from the prophets? So the Old Testament story ends with the expectation of something more to come, because it's kind of a cliffhanger. Secondly, Jesus equipped his apostles and disciples to write the books that became the New Testament. Jesus himself promised the gift of the Holy Spirit to his apostles and disciples, who would teach and bring to their remembrance all things, guiding them into all truth. You can see John 14, 26 and 16, 13 to 14 for that. This is why the New Testament primarily consists of writings from the apostles, their associates and disciples of Jesus. The gift of the Holy Spirit enabled and carried them along as they wrote the New Testament scriptures. See 2 Peter 1, uh, 21. Thirdly, the apostles claimed the authority to write scripture. The apostles claimed the authority to equal uh, to that of the Old Testament prophets to speak and write the very words of God. Peter encourages his readers to remember the commandment of our Lord and Savior through the apostles or through your apostles. That's in 2 Peter 3 verse 2. To lie to the apostles, that's, you know, for example, Acts 5, 2, was equivalent to lying to the Holy Spirit, see Acts 5, 3, and lying to God, see Acts 5, 4. Paul tells the, the Corinthians, actually, that uh, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that I'm writing to you as a command of the Lord, see 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37. There are many other places where we can uh, see this claim to authority, such as 2 Corinthians 13.3, Romans 2.16, and Galatians 1.8-9. Also, see 1 Thessalonians 2.13, 4, 8, 5, uh, and 15, and then 5.27, and also, again, in 2 Thessalonians 3.6 and 14. So, all throughout the New Testament, there's this conf confirmation and affirmation that the apostles had authority to write divinely inspired words which were recorded as scripture for us. Now, there's the question of whether or not this is the product of later development. Some skeptics claim that the books of the New Testament were only given authority later as Christianity developed. However, the recognition of the writings of the apostles and disciples of Jesus as Holy Scripture was not a development that happened later on. In fact, right in the New Testament itself, we have Peter classifying Paul's epistles as Scripture. Peter says, So, also, our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. 2 Peter 3 verses 15 and 16. Now, notice, notice there, really important to see, this is the Apostle Peter, and here he classifies Paul's writings with the other scriptures referring to the Old Testament canon, right? So far from the claim of some uh, skeptics that, you know, this was a development later on in the, in the church, you can see that the early church, right from the beginning, very close to the beginning, already was recognizing the writings of the apostles as divinely inspired. A second example can actually be found in 1 Timothy um, chapter 5, 
verses 17 and 18, where Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, the first quotation of scripture that Paul uses is from Deuteronomy 25.4, Old Testament, right? Uh, so that one makes sense. However, the second quotation is actually, so the, the laborer deserves his wages, is actually from Luke 10.7, right? He uses exactly the same Greek words as in the text of Luke. So here we have Paul quoting from the writings of Luke along, alongside a clearly accepted Old Testament canonical book, Deuteronomy, and calling it scripture. So we see from these two passages clear evidence that even from very early in the church, even before the close of the New Testament canon itself, the writings of the apostles and disciples of Jesus were considered as scripture. Thus, as more of the New Testament books were written, the canon uh, expanded as, as guided by the Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about the early church and the canon. What is the testimony of the early church about this? So we have testimony from early church writers. Uh, the early church father, Tertullian, who lived uh, 155 to 220 AD, he noted this, the law and the prophets, she, the church, unites in one volume with the writings of the evangelists, the authors of the gospels and apostles from which she drinks or receives her faith. And Irenaeus, another early church father, uh, writing in between um, 130 to 202 AD, so quite early, he says, I've pointed out the truth and shown the preaching of the church which the prophets proclaimed, but which Christ brought to, to perfection, and the apostles have handed down, from which the church, receiving these truths, and throughout all the world, alone preserving them in their integrity, has transmitted them to her sons. So there, Irenaeus is talking about the transmission here of the, the text that the apostles and disciples had produced, and in the early years of the Christian church, in uh, the first centuries after Christ and the apostles, the Bible in its entirety with all the writings of the New Testament was not readily available to all Christians. And that's an important kind of side note to remember. So remember, right, that this was prior to the internet and the printing press, right? Um, so transmission was a lot slower than it is today. Much of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles was transmitted via word of mouth and hand copied manuscripts in the first centuries of the church. Now, writing materials were expensive, and not everyone could read or write in those days. So, there are some early church writers who do not seem to know all of the New Testament books because of availability to them at the time. And this is quite understandable, given the circumstances. However, even with these challenges, it was relative in a pretty relatively short order or short space of time that the New Testament canon of books was recognized as we know it today. This is testament actually to how committed the early Christians were to copying and distributing the, um, the New Testament scriptures. In fact, there's no other comparable example in, a, in, in antiquity around this time of a tradition so committed to the preservation and propagation of its written text. So that's a quite strong historical argument to the both the veracity of the New Testament and also the early adoption of these New Testament documents by the church. Now, let's talk about the Roman Catholic tradition, because in these sorts of discussions, there's always some um, debate around the Roman Catholic sort of view of how the canon was formed. So this leads to the question of the place of tradition within the Christian church. Now, Roman Catholics make a big deal 
uh, and also appeal a lot to what they call tradition with a capital T as the apostolic teaching that is handed down to the church via the apostolic succession of popes, right? This capital T tradition supposedly contains teachings confirming Roman beliefs about Mary, indulgences, papal infallibility, and so on. However, it, um, you know, is this really what was transmitted via these uh, supposed oral tra traditions of the early church? Well, let's take a look at um, one example here of the rule of faith. Right? This is from Greg Allison's uh, book, Historical Theology. He says, These written re records and unwritten tradition were seen as two parts of a unified whole. And the early church appealed to both to express its doctrines and to fight heresy. The only true and life-giving faith which the church has received from the apostles and imparted to her sons was referred to as the glorious and holy rule of our tradition, the rule of faith and the rule or canon of, of truth. This tradition was essentially fixed and agreed upon by all the churches, with its content being a succinct statement of essential Christian doctrine. Whatever was believed in the church had to conform to this rule of faith. Indeed, true doctrine could be distinguished from false by tracing its origins to this tradition of the apostles. Moreover, this rule of faith was public knowledge, accessible to everyone. Thus, it stood in contrast to certain heresies that claimed a secret knowledge, you know, Gnosticism, uh, of the, the truths of the Christian faith. This hidden wisdom was reserved for the elite of those erring movements and often went against biblical teaching. Not so for the apostolic tradition. It was public knowledge in conformity with scripture. Right? So this claim um, of Roman Catholic tradition, with a capital T, somehow passing on this unknown uh, or secret uh, knowledge it is it seems a little bit Gnostic in my uh, opinion. And, you know, these beliefs about Mary and indulgences and people infallibility that supposedly are found within this tradition um, actually doesn't really comport. Uh, the rule of faith, if there ever was a, a early tradition, is what was referred to. And this was public knowledge, like Allison notes. So the Apostles' Creed which is dated by some to as early as the second century, is quite possibly an example of this sort of rule of faith within the early church, which was used. And it was useful in uh, combating heresy, as not all churches had access to all the books of the New Testament, as I prior noted, right? Until uh, there was enough time for them to be circulated. The Apostles' Creed then uh, contained an example or a concise summary of the essential teaching of the Christian faith. The tradition which the early church writers referred to was a summary of the biblical truth which was readily available and widely known by the Christian church. It's not some hidden knowledge about papal infallibility or Marian dogmas that would be later quote-unquote discovered, right? Uh, so Roman Catholics, unfortunately, wrongly ascribe their later definition of tradition, with a capital T, to this early tradition of the church uh, to give legitimacy to their extra-biblical practices and beliefs. However, no firm support can be given from the early church for much of Rome's later dogmas and beliefs. There have been some claims by Catholic apologists that those dogmas were in latent seed form, they say, right? Uh, and later grew to become the full orb dogmas that they know today. However, this claim uh, has been refuted over and over, and, uh, and it kind of stretches credulity, both historically and theologically. A further problem is that the Roman Catholic Church gets to define for itself what is and what isn't considered capital T tradition. So 
if the church defines for itself what is capital T tradition, and this tradition determines what is to be believed, then there's never actually any possibility for correction. It becomes a vicious cycle that precludes reform then. So my goal though in pointing this out is not to be mean towards my Catholic friends, but rather to challenge them lovingly to investigate the truth. My desire is to see Roman Catholics come to a true knowledge of saving faith and a right view of scripture. Um, and though this is a short treatment on the topic, there's many great books that I could recommend and debates which go into a greater depth on the topic from what we have space and time here to cover. If you're interested in that, one good book that you can uh, check out that actually very thoroughly goes through Roman Catholic theology and uh, gives a Protestant or a evangelical assessment of them is called Roman Catholic Theology and Practice and Evangelical Assessment. And that's by Greg Allison. He goes through actually the whole Roman Catholic Catechism and gives a response as quite charitable. He gives you know concessions where uh, we agree and then also explains uh, the reasons why we disagree on certain points. That's a great book to check out. There's also a lot of debates online. Uh, one of my favorite debaters is uh, Dr. James or Dr. James White, and he has a whole series. Uh, I think it's called the Great Debates on YouTube that you can find, where he does debates with Roman Catholic apologists, and that's often a really helpful way to see the two sides interact and then judge for yourself with the strength of the arguments. Now, this leads us into the next question that we're going to look at is how did the church recognize which books are canonical and which are not, right? Because that's an important topic and question. How do we determine or how did the church uh, discern which books were inspired? So the Roman Catholic view um, of the canon believes that it was the papal magisterium which pronounces certain books as canonical and gives them scriptural status, right? So however, uh, you know, if you think this through though, this puts the church over the Bible instead of God's word over the church, right? Because if the Roman Catholic Church is the one that gives books their scriptural status and authority then, then it's not God's word over the church, but the church is defining what God's word is. And this type of model makes it impossible to reform the church by his word. Because, you know, if the church defines what is what the word is, then it cannot be reformed by that which it gets to define. Does that make sense? Um, and this led to many of the doctrinal problems within the Roman Catholic Church, even to this day. Semper reformanda, right, uh, a Latin phrase that just basically means always reforming, that the church must always be reformed by God's word, is a really important uh, principle that came out of the Reformation. The church did not form the canon of scripture, though. Rather, it was exactly the opposite. God's word or scripture itself is the thing that formed the church. Uh, Greg Allison in his book, Historical Theology, he writes, quoting Paul, Calvin affirmed that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20. Thus, scripture preceded the church and it cannot owe its existence to church authority. The church recognized and affirmed the divinely inspired writings that God intended for placement in the canon, but it did not create or determine the canon of scripture. As the church was formed, it recognized, that's really important, that word recognized, the books of scripture. Thus, there's an interconnected relationship between scripture and the church. Now, we've got to ask this question, and I probably ask this question quite a lot, uh, is by what standard? Right? If, if the scriptures are what they say they are, the very word of God, then they bear ultimate authority and thus would be self-attesting to their truthfulness and authority. You see, something with ultimate authority 
cannot appeal to something else outside of itself to give it its authority. Because then that other thing that it appealed to would be more ultimate than it. Makes sense, right? Like, I mean, if, if something got ultimate authority, it can't appeal to anything above it because it's supposed to be the ultimate. So the canonicity and authority of the books of scripture would be something intrinsic to them from the time the ink was on the paper or on the parchment of the original autographs. So the canon would exist from the very time that the spirit inspired the original authors to be written, to, to write them, right? Not as some leader human invention or, you know, that the church gave it some sort of status. No, they had authority from the time that, that pen went to parchment, right? Because of the intrinsic nature of them. So therefore, the, the question of canon actually isn't how did the church make these books canonical, but rather, how did the church recognize the books which are canonical? Hope you're tracking with that and that makes sense. So contrary to popular myths that are propagated by fiction authors like Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, right, and others who say that the books of the Bible were determined at the Council of Nicaea, I'm sure you've heard that myth before, the, the true story is actually more interesting. This myth makes for great fiction and okay movie spin-offs, but it's actually terrible history because the Council of Nicaea was not about that. Let's talk about recognizing the canon. There are three features which help the church recognize the canonical books. They are, firstly, divine qualities, secondly, apostolic origin, and thirdly, corporate reception. So again, divine qualities, apostolic origin, corporate reception. Those are three points really important to, to, to memorize um, if you have these sorts of conversations with perhaps Catholics who disagree, right? That the way that the church recognized the canonical books was these three clear criteria, divine qualities, apostolic origins, and corporate reception. So let's talk about divine qualities first. The Westminster Larger Catechism uh, asked the question in question four, it says, how does it appear that the scriptures are the word of God? Answer, the scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, by their light and power to convince and convert sinners, to comfort and build up believers unto salvation, but the Spirit of God bearing witness by and with the scriptures in the heart of man is alone able fully to persuade that it that they are the very word of God. And there's a bunch of citations in there if you look it up in the larger catechism of our scriptures that kind of proof text this. Now, uh, just as all of creation declares God's glory as his handiwork, and creation itself evidences its maker. So too, the word of God has an intrinsic quality of declaring the glory of God in their majesty and message. That's, that's kind of a summary of what the catechism answer is getting at there, right? That they bear the marks of his handiwork. John Piper calls this quality of scripture a peculiar glory of the word of God. Like they have this peculiar glory as you, you read them and you see just the, the depth of insight in scripture. This quality of scripture is seen by those who humbly apply themselves to study it. So John Mary uh, used to say this, if the heavens declare the glory of God and therefore bear, bear witness to their divine creator, the scriptures as God's handiwork must also bear the imprints of his authorship. Heinrich Bullinger uh, says that the holy biblical scripture, because it is the word of God, has standing and credibility enough in and of itself. Right? So this is a quality that is intrinsic to scripture. And we can talk about a couple of different ways that this uh, you know, 
glory uh, comes through in scripture, this peculiar glory. Uh, one is prophecy. One of the ways the scripture shows its divine qualities is through fulfilled prophecy. Only the sovereign Lord of history can declare the end from the beginning. Uh, see Isaiah 46.10. And the scriptures, as his word, bear record of this truth. There are hundreds upon hundreds of prophecies and fulfillments in God's word. According to some data sets, in, in terms of just messianic prophecies, that is, you know, prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus Christ alone, right? There are around 300 specific prophecies in scripture. Actually, Peter Stoner, who's a, a professor, um, who is the chairman of the departments of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena City College, he calculated the odds of one person uh, fulfilling even just eight of the prophecies about the Messiah. And it's as astro astronomical a number as it's somewhere between the magnitude of one times 10 to the power of 17. Now that's a number so big, I don't even know what the name of that number is, but it's basically a one with 17 zeros behind it. So the odds now, they go up exponentially when just 48 of the 300 plus prophecies are considered to be um, are considered, right? Um, so that number would actually be one to the 157th power. So 157 zeros after that. Just to put that into pers some perspective, because these are huge numbers that we don't really uh, know how to, con to, to, to fathom, right? Some scientists estimate that the number of atoms in the known universe is 10 to the 80th power, right? So less than the odds of just 48 of the specific messianic prophecies coming to bear, right? Uh, and there are many apologetic ministries and theology books which, which lay out how Christ fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. This alone should be compelling, um, but there's a lot more. So how else do the scriptures show their divine qualities? Well, another category is their majesty. Their majesty. Another way that the scriptures show their divine qualities are in the majesty of the scriptures. Uh, when one considers the amazing truths that they proclaim, they're not the sorts of inventions that people would come up with on their own. I mean, who would invent such a God as ours? One who's totally uncontrollable and terrible in might. One who sovereignly predestines and elects on the basis of sheer grace and not of any actual or foreseen merit in the person. Yet this same God is intensely personal and intimately concerned with us. The scriptures also show their majesty in their purity. God's law and standards are morally perfect and pure beyond even our highest human moral aspirations, going even to the heart and intentions of people. They show it in the consistency of the parts and the scope of the whole of redemptive history. As all, it, it all weaves together like a tapestry of a grand narrative far bigger and far more marvelous than any human would dare to dream. These majestic qualities of scripture attest to their divine authority as bearing the imprints of God and not just of human authorship. Thirdly, how else do the, the scriptures show their divine qualities is by their power. The word of God is powerful. The scriptures show their divine qualities in their power to convert sinners and create a people of God who are zealous for good works. See Titus 2.14. They show it in their ability to comfort, to build up, to rebuke, to sanctify, uh, and to make us pure as believers. See 2 Timothy 3.16-17. The, the teachings of the scripture prove to bring wisdom. See Psalm 119 verse 98 or 2 Timothy 3.16. They give joy to the heart. See Nehemiah 8.8 8, um, to 12. See Psalm 119 verse 111. 
they provide light to the dark paths of life. See Psalm 119 verse 105. They give understanding to the mind. See Psalm 119 verse 144. They give peace and comfort. See Psalm 119 verse 50. And expose sin and guilt. See 2 Kings 22, 11 to 13, Acts 2, 34 to 37, and Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. And they lead to prosperity and blessing. See Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. Jonathan Edwards actually put it this way. The gospel of the blessed Lord does not go abroad a-begging for its evidence, so much as some think. It has its highest and most proper evidence in itself. The mind ascends to the truth of the gospel not by one step, and that is by its divine glory. So Edwards is basically saying that the way that um, our hearts or our minds uh, realize that the scriptures are divinely inspired, that they have this quality is actually by a recognition of their divine glory, by being captivated by that. Jesus actually said it this way. He said that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. John 10 verse 27. Now, since all of scripture testifies to Christ, see John 5, 39, his sheep will hear his voice in the scriptures through the majesty, purity, consistency, scope, and power of their message. Now, notice how all of these qualities are only available to be seen by the one who honestly and earnestly applies themselves to read and understand the scripture. This is why we cannot just put down our sword. This is why we must lead our unbelieving family and friends to the word of God. You see, scripture is a means of grace to transform people's lives. It is powerful, sharp, and spirit-empowered. And it is in exposure to God's word that its self-attesting power can bear itself upon a, a person's conscience and bring conviction of its truthfulness. So, trying to prove the Bible to someone without actually bringing them into contact, direct contact with the word of God, would actually be a futile endeavor. You're putting down your sword. You're not letting them come into um, face-to-face contact with the power and majesty and the spirit-empowered nature of Scripture itself. Now, let's move on and we'll talk about apostolic origins. So we talked about the divine qualities, right? That was one of the criteria that the church used to recognize which books were scriptural, which books were inspired and belonged in the canon. Now we're going to talk about apostolic origins. New Testament scholar Michael J. Kruger, excellent scholar, by the way, writes this in his book, Canon Revisited. He says, not only did the apostles themselves write many of these New Testament documents, but in a broader sense, they presided over the transmission of the apostolic deposit and labored to make sure that the message of Christ was firmly and accurately preserved for future generations through the help of the Holy Spirit. He gives a bunch of references. Thus, the, the New Testament canon is not so much a collection of writings by apostles, but a collection of apostolic writings, writings that bear the authoritative message of the apostles and derive from the foundational apostolic era, even if not directly from their hands. So many early Christians writing, uh, they, they testify to this fact, right? That, for example, um, the letter of First Clement, written very early, somewhere around 96 AD, right? Says this, this is from First Clement uh, chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. He says, The apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Christ, was sent from God. The Christ, therefore, is from God and the apostles from Christ. So part of what determined the apostolic origins of a book was the fact that it could be reliably traced back to that apostolic time of the first century. 
there's simply not many other writings outside of the New Testament that can be dated to that time. And thus, there aren't many legitimate candidates for canonicity other than the books that, of the New Testament which we have today. The earliest Christians used this, this criteria of divine qualities and apostolic origins as well as others uh, to, to screen the books that they considered as scripture. Irenaeus, for example, testifies of this saying in his book uh, Against Heresies. He says, We have learned from none others the plan of salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our truth. So we see that there is a very strong apostolic witness that traces the origins of the New Testament documents back to the apostles. Let's talk about our last criteria here that we're going to discuss, which is corporate reception. So again, the, the, the criteria for the recognition of books as apostolic or as, sorry, as canonical were divine qualities, apostolic origins, and thirdly, corporate reception. So corporate reception is connected with the previous two attributes. The church over time recognizes the voice of the shepherd in the books of scripture through their divine qualities and apostolic origins. Thus, the role of the church in recognizing the canon is more like a thermometer than it is a thermostat. And here's what I mean. A thermometer recognizes the temperature of a room, whereas a thermostat determines the temperature of a room. The church simply recognized, like a, thermo a thermometer, and responded to the self-attesting qualities of the canonical books through the Holy Spirit's testimony. This was one of the reasons the Spirit was given to believers. Actually, St. Augustine, he expressed it this way. He said, let us treat scriptures like scripture, like God speaking. Don't look there for a man going wrong. It's not, it's not for nothing. You see, that the, the, the canon has been established for the church. This is the function of the Holy Spirit. So if anyone reads my book, let him pass judgment on me. If I have said something reasonable, let him follow. Not me, but reason itself. For if I have proved it by the clearest divine testimony, let him follow. Not me, but the divine scripture. In a treatise uh, between somewhere around uh, 396 and 427 AD, after the supposedly authoritative decision of Pope uh, Damasus, the Council of Hippo about the canon, um, Augustine again wrote this. He said, in matter of, of uh, the canonical scriptures, he should follow the authority of the greater number of the Catholic churches. Among, now Catholic there, he's not talking about Roman Catholic, it's just Catholic as in universal, right? And he says that, he continues, among which are those which have deserved to have apostolic seats and receive epistles. He will observe this ruling concerning canonical scriptures that he will prefer those accepted by all Catholic churches to those which um, some do not accept. Among those which are not accepted by all, he should prefer those which are accepted by the largest number of important churches to those held by a few minor churches of less authority. If he discovers that some are maintained by the larger number of churches, others by the churches of weightiest authority, although this condition is not likely, he should hold them to be of equal value. So there you see Augustine is making this sort of argument, right, that the corporate reception of the church of, of these books, right, that if it's received by a large number of churches, and especially churches which he considers uh, ha having weighty authority, that that gives credibility, basically, right? So this shows that Augustine uh, did not see councils or popes as the authoritative 
final word on the canon, but rather he urged all students of scripture to examine the consensus among the people of God. He pointed to the corporate reception of scripture as a marker of his validity. Now, what about the disagreements in the early church about the canon? Historically, there were some differences of opinions by Christians about which books were canonical and which weren't. Corporate reception does not mean absolute unity regarding the canon of scripture for primarily two reasons. Firstly, the availability of the scriptures, because you can't receive what's not available to you, right? And some books took a bit more time to be circulated after they were written. And secondly, the distorting effects of sin and our fallen nature, right? That because of sin, we, can't, we, we don't perfectly uh, receive God's word sometimes, right? That we're blinded by our own sinfulness. However, what it does mean is that throughout the ages, though there may be some pockets of differing opinions, the church as a whole, right, when you look at the whole big picture, experienced widespread unity around the canon, around which books were received as divinely inspired. This corporate reception of the canonical books is evidenced by the historical record which we have of the early writings of the church. Many of the early church fathers and bishops and pastors, etc., they wrote letters and commentaries on the scriptures and cited books that were authoritative as scripture. Some even produced lists that reflected the books that they knew to be divinely inspired, such as the Muratorian Fragment, which is from around 180 AD, and uh, that one contains a list of about 22 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. So you see very early you have this formation of some, some um, formalized list or canon. Other more complete lists uh, can be found in such things as Athanasius's uh, Festal Letter, which actually lists all 27 books of the New Testament. And this work was actually published and circulated and distributed, right? So through these attributes, divine qualities, apostolic origins, and corporate reception, the Spirit was at work helping the believers rightly to recognize the, the presence and validity of these scriptural books of the New Testament. So now to end off our series in the books of the Bible, let's consider the hypothetical question, right? If Are there any missing books in our Bible today, right? Are there any other candidates for the canon of scripture? Today, there exists no strong candidates for addition into the canon and no strong objections to any book presently in our canon. Although there are many other early church writings that people say should be included in the canon, such as early Christian leaders and bishops or writings such as the Shepherd of Hermas or the Didache, right? These do not hold up to the standards laid out in what we've covered previously. Several of the early church fathers express, expressly actually stated that their own writings were not to be viewed as authoritative. So, for example, Ignatius, right? He's writing about AD uh, 108. He says, I do not order you as did Peter and Paul. They were apostles, I am a convict. They were free, and I am even now, uh, until now, a slave. And that, that's in his letter to the Romans. And you can compare that attitude uh, towards the apostles in First uh, Clement, for example, chapter 42, who writes similarly, is stressing the fact that he's not writing as an apostle. Uh, or in Ignatius's uh, letter to the, to the Magnesians, um, in chapter 7 specifically. Now, other early writings, such as the Shepherd of Hermas, teach unbiblical concepts, such as the necessity of penance, that baptism uh, forgives sins, and a confusion about the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. You can see uh, a little bit more about that in the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church. Now, what about the Gospel of Thomas and other early writings that claim to be scripture? The Gospel of Thomas, which for a time was held 
by some to belong to the canon ends with a quite absurd statement. I'm going to read to you from this actual document, the, the Gospel of Thomas. And you, you tell me what you think of this, if this was to be added into our, our canon. It says this, Simon Peter said to them, let Mary go away from us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, lo, I shall lead her so that she may make herself a male, that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. What do you think about that? Uh, now, we can clearly see that the Gospel of Thomas is here teaching something utterly ridiculous and is not in keeping with the teaching of the rest of Scripture. Now, maybe there's, a, there's some of today's liberal or LGBTQ sort of um, agenda and people who would love to hear and to have that you know, section of, uh, added into Scripture, but that does not comport with what the rest of Scripture teaches, right? Uh, and thus, its authorship even though it might be somewhat early, it fails the other tests of can canonicity, right? Similarly, there are other books which some liberal and critical scholars have tried to argue should be added to our Bibles, such as the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Gospel of Judas, and many more. Many of these, though, can't be reliably traced to the authors that they claim to be penned by, right? They're pseudopigraphal, and they're actually uh, much later forgeries, and they also contain many numerous um, aberrant teachings, such as Gnosticism or Docetism, the belief that Christ's body was not human, but rather a like a phantom or some, you know, some sort of celestial substance. The Gospel of Peter, for example, records Jesus on the cross saying, My power, my power, thou hast forsaken me. <laughs> Weird, right? Uh, immediately after, it states that uh, when he had said it, he was taken up. Now, biblical scholar F.F. F. Bruce comments on the Gospel of Peter. He says this, The docetic note in this narrative appears in the statement that Jesus, while being crucified, remained silent, as though uh, he felt no pain. And in the account of his death, it, it carefully avoids saying that he died, preferring to say that he was taken up, as though he or at least his soul or spiritual self was assumed direct uh, from the cross to the presence of God. We shall see an echo of this in uh, the idea of the Quran, right? The Quran kind of borrows from that. Um, then the cry of dereliction is reproduced in a form which suggests that at the moment, his divine power left the bodily shell in which it had taken up temporary, temporary resonance. So you can see the Gospel of Peter, this is not in accordance with um, Orthodox Christian teaching. Orthodox Christian scholarship has thoroughly debunked the claims of these books, yet there's some of these myths that just keep getting propagated uh, through popular channels like even the History Channel or fiction novels like The Da Vinci Code, which was made into a movie. I constantly see this on uh, Facebook and in social media of skeptics who will post, um, you know, things from these different supposed gospels, right? But oftentimes the people who are posting these things have no clue what they actually contain and just how ridiculous some of them are. Now, regarding other writings which were claimed uh, claiming canonical authority. Origen, in uh, 184 to 253 AD, he said, the church receives only four gospels. Heretics have many, such as the gospel of the Egyptians, the gospel of Thomas, see he notes that one, uh, and so on. These we read that we may not seem to be ignorant to those who think they know something extraordinary if they are acquainted with those things which are recorded in these books.
So their origin is plainly stating that these are, are fake books, fake gospels, and they read them simply you know, to be aware, like the early Christians were also apologists. Ambrose, actually, in 340 to 397 AD, is credited with saying, we read these that we may not seem ignorant. We read them, not that we receive them, but that we may reject them and may know that what those things are of which they make such a boast. So we see that the early church fathers were aware of these spiritual, uh, sorry, spurious writings, and they rejected them. Every other existing document of the early church outside the New Testament, which might be considered for inclusion in the canon, contain either uh, explicit dis disclaimers by the author that they are not to be considered authoritative, or they include some doctrinal aberrations that make them unworthy of inclusion. Because all scripture shares one divine source, truly inspired scripture will not contradict previous revelation. Otherwise, God would contradict himself. On the other hand, there are no strong objections to any book currently in the canon. Now, let's take a look at another hypothetical question just briefly as we end off here. What if we found a lost letter of Paul today? At this point, uh, someone may ask the hypothetical question about what we should do if another one of Paul's letters, let's say, were discovered. Um, would we add it to scripture? Now, this is a difficult question because two conflicting considerations are involved. On the one hand, if a great majority of believers were convinced that this was indeed authentic uh, Pauline epistle, right, written in the course of Paul's fulfillment of his apostolic office, then the nature of Paul's apostolic authority would seem to guarantee that a writing would be, at, at the very least, consistent with the rest of Scripture and perhaps bear some authority. But the fact that it was not preserved as part of the canon would indicate that it was not among the writings the apostles and God himself wanted the church to preserve as part of Scripture. Moreover, uh, it must immediately be said that such a hypothetical question is just that. It's just hypothetical. It is exceptionally difficult to imagine what kind of historical data might be discovered that would convincingly demonstrate to the church as a whole that a letter has been lost for over you know, some 1900 to 2000 years uh, and that this actually was genuinely authored by Paul. That would be quite an insurmount insurmountable uh, amount of evidence required now, right? It's, it's, it's more difficult still to understand how our sovereign God could have faithfully cared for his people for over 1900 to 2000 years and still allowed them to be continually deprived of something he intended for them to have as part of his final revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. So these considerations make it so highly improbable that any such manuscript would ever be discovered at some time in the future that such a hypothetical question really doesn't merit further serious consideration in my opinion. So divinely preserved for us that in conclusion, are there any books in our present canon uh, that should not be there? Are there any books missing from our present canon that, uh, that of scripture? Well, no, to both. We can rest assured with confidence in this fact of the faithfulness of God our Father, who would not lead all his people for nearly 2,000 years now to trust as his word something that is not. We find this confidence in God's sovereign hand repeatedly confirmed both by the historical investigation and by the work of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to hear God's voice in a unique way as we read from every one of the 66 books in our present canon of scripture. James White in his book Scripture Alone says this, the, I, it, the entire idea of lost scripture 
requires us to believe that God will go through the work of inspiring his word so as to provide for his church guidance and instruction and encouragement. But then, having inspired his word, be shown incapable of protecting and preserving it and leading the church to recognize it for what it is. That's pretty ridiculous, right? Uh, This sort of view of God is not the God of the Bible. Our God is more than capable of preserving his word for us. And he has. What a blessing that is to us. Now, may we never neglect our Bibles and the amazing gift that is given to the church. May we study it more and more and be reformed by it day and day. Uh, Would we never take for granted the immense privilege that we have to read and hear very often the word of God. So I hope that you've enjoyed this two-part series on the books of the Bible and that it's been edifying and you've learned something from this and maybe that has equipped you to also know how to defend, defend the Bible and to express that clearly. And now I'd like to do a future series perhaps on other topics of theology of God's word such as inspiration, authority, sufficiency, clarity, right? Those sorts of things, inerrancy. Uh, but that might be for another time. Uh, for now, I hope that you enjoyed this series. If you liked it, please consider sharing it with somebody. And until next time, soli deo glory. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity Podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.